0: Show. I'm joined here, as always, by David. How are you, David? I'm good, thanks, Rob. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. We are recording this on Boxing Day, so we're both, I think, massively anticipating some Test Match Cricket later today.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's in Melbourne, this, this Test, so I won't be long today, but probably tomorrow I'm going to get along and actually watch a good game of
0: cricket. Oh, very nice. We're playing Pakistan at the moment, for the people out there who uh, aren't following this. And it's been a good series so far. One match in, and uh, it was a very interesting match.
1: It's been absolutely wonderful ever since they gave the test team back to Steve Smith as the captain and took it away from the bureaucrats, and he's brought in new kids, and he's playing the style of cricket he wants to play, and it's so much better to watch, and the results are so much better. It's a
0: good summer so far. Absolutely. But you haven't joined the Crick Info podcast. This is the Doctor Who show, so let's get into <laughs> it. Um, we have some some listener email. Uh, This one's from Richard Nolan And he's written in based on our uh, recent Star Wars Rogue One podcast And he says Yeah, yeah, it's good to get some feedback on that Being a a non-Doctor Who thing that we've done He says, uh, hello gentlemen Listening to your latest podcast, really enjoying the discussion Thank you Richard I can confirm Richard Franklin is one of the small group of engineers on the platform in keeping with the need for all on-screen characters to have a name and backstory, his character is called Ciro Argon, and he's the administrator who makes sure the scientists on the project get what they need. The source for this is the Rogue One visual guide I flicked through at the bookshop near work at lunchtime today, and he's uh, included some pictures there, David, so we can see uh, Captain Mike Yates in Star Wars. That's pretty cool.
1: That's great. I'm sure we'll uh, tweet those out and put them up on
0: Facebook. I think so. And he ends with "keep punching." Now, I think that's a bit of a 42 to Doomsday thing. I, I'm not sure I can say that on this podcast.
1: No, no, we we probably can't. But uh, yes, we do need to acknowledge Richard is actually my co-presenter on the Goodies podcast. So if you like the Goodies, go check that out. Um, but you can also hear him and indeed myself on the 42 to Doomsday staff Christmas party episode where we had a bit of fun. So. I just uh, was guesting on there, Rob. I'm still here. Don't
0: worry. I know. I know. In fact, I enjoyed the little gag you made because you were hosting the recording and you said, oh, this is brought to you by the, the Doctor Who show. And, and you had Mark <laughs> saying, oh, whoa, whoa, back the truck up. What's happening?
1: <laughs> that's that's right. It's very small Australian fandom. So that's good. But I, I like Richard's email and it's good to confirm that Richard Franklin was in and where we guessed he was. Um, have you had a chance to see the Rogue One film again, Rob?
0: No, no, not yet. My my wife definitely wants to see it at the cinema, and I said, look, we'll go and see it when the crowds have died down a bit, you know, for that for that session. So we'll definitely do it, and I'm really looking forward to it as well. I think it was a great film, and the more I think about it, the more I, I really... The more I think about it, the more I like it, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's one of those movies where you feel really good at the end of it, uh, but it's not one of those movies where, as time goes on and, you know, days and weeks pass, you go, oh, maybe that bit wasn't as good. It, it, it's really held up in the memory, and I... I will see it again, but this is the first year ever I've had a chance to get to 50 movies in the cinema in one year, and I can't lose a slot by seeing a movie twice, so after New Year, I'll see it again.
0: (laughs) Well, congratulations on that, and just on Rogue One, for Christmas, I bought myself, because I often buy myself presents, I bought myself The Art of Rogue One. Uh, which is a nice big coffee table book, hardcover. Loads of beautiful conceptual artwork in it and also loads of text. I knew this would be a good book because I bought the same style of book for uh, The Force Awakens a year ago. Oh, cool. And I find these art books are often quite revealing in terms of characters, locations and stuff because obviously they're talking about the creative process of making the pictures and in doing so they talk about the characters or the locations or whatever quite a bit too. Now, I haven't got into it, I haven't started flicking through but I know I'm going to enjoy that in the, the days ahead while i'm on holidays um just beautiful books to read
1: yeah star wars does do that side of the merchandise very very well so i think that'll be a very nice little uh possession for you
0: Mm. now look before we get to the well we have two main events here i guess today but before we get to one of them i do have a bit of doctor who commentary to make uh news if you will i don't know if you've got any up your sleeve it was a bit of a quiet month this past month
1: yeah look it has been very very quiet i think that they're waiting to launch season 10 proper which meant they needed to get the christmas special out of the way and so i think we'll start to get a big gear up from here but it's, it's a pretty dead period for entertainment at the moment generally isn't it
0: oh it is it is now, the first of these two things isn't news per se, it's it's just something I've been collecting personally, which is the Eagle Moss painted Doctor Who figurines. These were the ones that were coming out, you know, once a week with a, a little thin magazine talking about the character in question. And normally I eschew these collect every week things, you know, because the first ones, you know, get it now for 99 cents and then <laughs> forever after it's 20 or 25 bucks a week for years and years and years. And, and, you know, I wasn't too impressed with the quality of the early figures in this collection, uh, which I think started about 2013. It started a long time ago now. I think Matt Smith might have been the first figure and he just looked atrocious. And I thought, nah, this isn't for me. Although I love figurines. I love Doctor Who. I love this whole concept. This was the whole reason I was buying in the 80s 25 millimeter, 40 millimeter, 80 millimeter figures, uh, made by, um, different companies. Here, I just couldn't get into it, but more recently, I saw some later figures, and in fact, the one that really swung me was a Colin Baker figure, and I thought, oh my God, they've actually painted his coat reasonably well. I mean, you can't get the actual tartan effect on the red panels and all that, but it was very, very close, and I thought, they're doing much better with these than in the early days. Long story short, I've now bought the 12 Doctors, four Daleks and four Cybermen, and I have them on two uh, official Eagle Moss plinths on my bookshelf.
1: Oh, that's very impressive.
0: Yeah, and uh, it wasn't cheap, because obviously these were in stores at about $20 a pop, so now that I'm trying to buy things that were released several years ago, and I think some of them were quite hard to get, like I think Patrick Troughton was quite a hard Doctor to get, I've I've paid up, upwards of about $40 for some of them, so having bought 20 figures recently at up to $40 a pop, you can tell I've spent a, a pretty penny, but I like it. I think it's worth it. Uh, I still don't like that early Matt Smith figure, and the David Tennant's not too good, but other than that, the other Doctors look fantastic. The Daleks in particular look sensational. And uh, it's a nice thing I'm, I'm glad I did it
1: and, and are the Daleks and Cybermen all classic or all new Or a good mix of both or
0: uh, Well they've done a good mix of both Across the board But because I bought these two plinths Which could carry ten characters apiece And so I've got twenty slots I thought well twelve of those will be Doctors I've got eight slots left I thought I'll buy four Daleks and four Cybermen So I bought a tenth planet Cyberman. I got an invasion Cyberman. I got an Earthshock uh, cyber Controller, and I got one of the uh, Age of Steel-type Cybermen from the modern series. I thought that was a fairly good spread of different-looking Cybermen.
1: Yeah, that's good. I like that.
0: Yeah, and in terms of Daleks, I got the, uh, the Skaro Dalek. I got the uh, Supreme Dalek from Resurrection of the Daleks. They've obviously made several Supreme Daleks, but I got the Resurrection one, the uh, black-and-white one. Uh, I got the Special Weapons Dalek for something different. And I also got one of the modern-looking Daleks, uh, which they say is the Dalek from Dalek. Uh, so, yeah, I think a, a good spread there. I actually wouldn't have minded more Daleks because they look so good painted up. They look fantastic.
1: Oh, great. No, that's really nice. You can get some really nice variation of the Daleks, but that sounds like a good mix.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it suits me. And I'm not going to collect any more. I've got the 12 Doctors. I've got his main two enemies. I'm I'm happy. I've spent a lot of money. I'm, <laughs> I'm moving on.
1: Yeah there's there's a point between being a nice presentation piece and being a proper collectible fan thing and I think you've you've struck a really nice balance there between something that looks nice on the shelf and is appropriate and moderate um and if you if you go any further from there you sort of I think fall into the trap of well I've got to get every one now and if you go down that path forever will it guide your destiny
0: Oh, look, I know, I know. And there are people who've done it. When I talked about this on Twitter, I think uh, Kevin Jordan, one of our contributors to the TARDIS Library uh, episodes, he said, oh, I've got them all. And he, he sent me some pictures of his uh, cabinets at home and they're loaded with every every creature you could imagine, every doctor. The weird thing is they didn't make any companions in this series. That That's quite strange. It might be a copyright thing or something. I don't know.
1: Uh, well, I I do believe they would have to pay the artists or their estates for their image so they may be willing to do that for doctors but not for companions
0: right yeah that makes sense it would have been nice though if they were in it it would be nice to have a six doctor standing next to perry or something like that but no
1: in, in fact I, I i know this for a fact because i do recall a convention once with liz sladen where um in fact it was richard who sent me the email he presented with her with a item of merchandise from a particular collection and asked her to sign it and she looked and said i haven't seen this before They've never asked for my image. I'll have to get my agent on this one. Wow. (laughs) Which is fair enough.
0: Yeah, yeah. And look, just thinking of figurines and collectibles and stuff, I wasn't going to even mention this, but the latest uh, Robert Harrop figurine is out too. Robert Harrop is this cottage industry in the UK who are famous for making little, uh, they're not porcelain, but they're kind of like porcelain, uh, dogs. Uh, wearing human clothes So you can get a dog as a judge Or a dog as a knight Or a dog as a, I don't know, racing car driver or whatever They're into that sort of thing But they've got the Doctor Who license And have been churning out these very, very, very limited edition Doctor Who figurines And over the past year or two I've picked up a Pertwee and a Tom Baker um, A Revenge of the Cyberman Cyberman, And just recently Just in the days before Christmas A David Tennant popped into my... um letterbox well not into the letterbox it was a huge box it didn't fit but you know <laughs> what i mean and uh
1: like something of a movie with a tenant dog climbing up into it
0: <laughs> that's right and it's uh it's number 245 of 250 so if they sold these sequentially i'd say david tenet is almost a sellout in this range and and they're a nice thing well, they're yeah a, they're, they're a quirky sort of thing they're about seven eight inches tall they're hand painted in the uk like I say, it's a very cottage industry kind of thing. So they're not perfect replicas, but they're, they're the kind of thing I like. It's the kind of reason I like Doctor Who, that sort of cottage industry feel to it. And this is cottage industry type merchandise.
1: Oh, very nice too. Um, As you know, when it comes to collecting books, it's sort of my thing. And for Christmas, I got two of the three new hardback re-releases of the original three targets, uh, the Zabi and the Crusaders. So they'll go on my shelf with my other reprints of those exact books. I think I've got three or four copies of each of them now, but all different reprints and different collectible sets. So that's quite nice.
0: Oh, they are beautiful. And I was talking about those in a recent episode of Who Teaks Roadshow, where we had Paul Schoons on talking about hardback target novels. And uh, we we briefly touched on those new reprints. And I think they're just great. I love those 60s covers they've got on them. They're They're just fantastic looking.
1: Yeah, they're just a lovely piece of ephemera. The same with the... Target collectibles that have been coming out with the Chris Achilleos covers. There's now about 19 of them out. They're just, I think, wonderful little pieces of collectible ephemera that I really
0: like. Excellent. Now, before we uh, get on to the uh, Doctor Who Christmas special, I do have one last piece of uh, news, and it's, it's figurine-based again. This is Warlord Games, who are a, uh, a wargaming company who make uh, different uh, ranges of figures and rules so you can have tabletop battles with people, you know, often in the fantasy genre and so on. Uh, a year or even more back, they said, oh, look, we've got the Doctor Who license, and we're going to make Doctor Who miniatures, and we're going to have rule books, and it'll be great. And I was thinking to myself, oh, I wonder how this will work, because the Doctor isn't really a guy who goes and stands on a battlefield and, you know, shoots it out with people. You know, it, it, I'm not sure how that could be a very interesting war game. And it's been very quiet for a long time. In fact, I tweeted at them a few times saying, are you still doing this, guys? What's happening? And they never replied, absolutely awful on Twitter, this company. They, uh, they just use it to push out their own messages. They don't like to talk to people, apparently. Uh, but they've now put out a new website. If people go to Doctor Who TimeVortex, one word, dot com, you can see these new sets they've put out of figures. They've got uh, a 10th Doctor and Companions box, and an 11th Doctor and Companions box, a 12th Doctor and Companions box. They've also got some really weird sets as well, like they've made a, a little set of Tetraps. If you want some tetraps in your battles,
1: okay, that is a little bit obscure.
0: Like, I, don't, I didn't think I would ever see a tetrap on a box or on a book or, or, or any sort of merchandise ever again, uh, I guess since the Daypole figure. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here it is. They're, they're making that. They're, they've got plans to make vervoids. They've got plans to do a lot of interesting stuff. They haven't made any classic Doctors and His Companions, but they're making some really weird classic monster choices, so I don't know what's going on there. Uh, the more I've dug, I've also learned that the basic game that's coming out first is a Daleks versus Cybermen game. <sighs> oh, sorry, fell asleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, you also get a doctor in the box. I don't know what the doctor does. Maybe stands between them and tosses off witty retorts or something. I have no idea. I'm a war gamer. I paint tabletop miniatures, but I actually couldn't be any any less excited about this whole venture uh, i don 't even like the look of the sculpts on these particular figures, as I say doctor dot com go and check it out, but uh, I just can't get excited about this at all.
1: Well, I think the last time I played anything of that nature was when I was about sixteen, so I definitely can't get excited. I'm sorry. Those who do check it out, absolutely.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, as I say, I am a war gamer. I, I play a game in particular called Saga, which is where I've got uh, a bunch of Anglo Saxons and I go around making shield walls and fighting Vikings and things like this. So I'm into tabletop gaming, and I can't get excited by this. So, um, hmm, there you go. I don't know. So, Rob, it's it's Christmas. It is Christmas. And, and, and how was your Christmas? I, we didn't really address that. Did you have a nice time? Uh,
1: yeah, I did. I did. I had a very pleasant day. It was quite nice. How about you?
0: Yeah, very good. Up to the parents uh, for a lovely lunch, you know, gave some gifts and uh, and then headed home and sat in the air conditioning because it was quite warm, although not as warm as in Melbourne.
1: Yeah, so let's let's touch on that as we move forward towards reviewing the Christmas episode. It's something that I I, I don't think that our Listeners and our colleagues and fellow podcasters in the UK and the US really appreciate just what a massively different thing Christmas Day is here in Australia Mm. to what it is back in the UK. So yesterday, as you hinted at, in Melbourne it peaked at 37 degrees and the sun was still up at 9.30 at night. So this idea of Christmas special television just doesn't exist in Australia. In fact, I know that certainly when I was a kid, if at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock, you said, I'm going to go inside and watch TV. You'd be belted around the ear and told, no, go outside and play a bit of backyard cricket or go to the beach or kick a footy or do something. It's not a sitting inside sort of day.
0: Yeah, go and get more sunburned.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's (laughs) right. Even now, I'm looking at my news feed, and the big story at the moment is that there's been 30 sharks spotted off the beaches of Victoria. So that's Christmas in Australia. Mm -hmm. So this idea of Christmas special television, where you all sit down and you you watch kind of twee annual event uh, specials of series doesn't exist here as a culture. It's just not in our culture at all. And I, I, I kind of got this last year when I spent Christmas with my sister in Leeds in the UK. And I did see that, you know, by four o'clock it's dark, it's cold outside, and you do want to snuggle up on the couch and watch entertaining television. So I've always thought, and I in your views here, Rob. The Doctor Who Christmas specials have never really resonated with Australian fans that way because they're just not part of our cultural psyche.
0: Yeah, that's right because we're not used to Christmas specials of of most things. I mean, we do get them dribbling in from the UK. Uh, for different shows, but uh, yeah, you're quite right. We we're outside. We're we're not thinking about television at all. In fact, it's what they call the non ratings period because the ratings people go off and have their own holiday, and all that gets shown on commercial television at least is just absolute crap because there's no ratings yeah. to worry about.
1: It's sport. It's repeats, or it's that sitcom from the US that nobody thinks is going to get a following, and just gets shown in the dead time to fill up space. There there really isn't any sense of television here in that time let alone specials and and yes we do get the christmas specials but usually they're just slotted in during the broadcast of a series so suddenly in may between series you know a couple of episodes we'll get a christmas special episode or famously the yes minister christmas special here i think was almost never screened as a special it was broken up into two half-hour episodes and just shown as part of the regular run
0: this is an interesting point you bring up um because I've been talking about growing up in Australia recently on a, on just a random Facebook post I made about how we we sort of have this uh, pull in some ways to the UK, but we're also very influenced by the US and US culture. And when I was growing up, it almost felt like I was watching British shows, but living in California, um, being here in Sydney, You because know, the weather was one way, but the TV shows were another way. It was quite discombobulating, actually, to me as a kid at times.
1: Yeah, and there's been a real cultural shift as well, I think, in my lifetime. You go back to the 80s, and there was still that sort of attempt to do a UK-style Christmas. But we've really broken away from that in the last 20, 30 years and started to have really Australian-style Christmases. a lot more barbecue-focused, a lot more seafood rather than your traditional sort of meals. And it's a very, very different feeling now here to what it is in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, obviously, the difference between 5 degrees and, you know, it can hit 40 degrees in Christmas in Australia sometimes. That's a very different sort of day.
0: Oh, absolutely. And in fact, if it was 37 in Melbourne, I'm sure it might have hit 40 elsewhere in the state, you know, maybe out west yeah. somewhere.
1: And of course, the other thing is we don't get the Doctor Who Christmas special on Christmas Day.
0: No, no, not at all. It's on Boxing Day uh, Eve, which is still yet to come for us. However, they also kindly drop it on the uh, ABC, uh, I was going to say iPlayer, <laughs> but I mean iView. And uh, we've watched it there to see it. So, um, yeah, it's an, it's an odd thing.
1: Yeah, and it certainly influenced a lot of my memories of some of the Christmas specials because not only do you not see them on Christmas Day in a UK context, you usually see them at the end of Boxing Day so you're incredibly tired, you've probably been watching the cricket, you're just getting over you know, the Christmas food and the drink and there's at least two Christmas specials I've fallen asleep during because <laughs> you're, just, you're just stuffed and it's not that sort of television that you're in the mood for and it, the whole thing just is a very... Strange experience for us in Australia, and, and, and I don't think we've ever quite got, the th- got them in the same way the UK do, where they, they fit into a cultural narrative that they don't hear.
0: Yeah, well, I actually noticed on that 42 to Doomsday uh, Christmas party that you mentioned earlier, that podcast, I think you were talking about how you've been watching them on Boxing Day night just as a, a more of a casual fan and so on. So I, I guess what you've done today by getting up early and watching it on Ivy was a, was a bit different to past years.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was, it was. But um, that's okay, all, all in a good cause. And, um, well, does that bring us into it?
0: <sighs> I think it might. Now, what I've done is I've made... Um, made my notes, as I do, um, and I've put them under three headings. One heading is thumbs up, one heading is thumbs down, and one heading is WTF.
1: <laughs>
0: now, I don't know how you arranged your notes or quite how you might like to do this, but uh, if you want to, you know, at any moment say to me, Rob, give me a thumbs up, Rob, give me a thumbs down, or Rob, give me a WTF, I will give you a random point and perhaps we can uh, riff on that.
1: Okay, do we want to make any headline comments first or just dive into it?
0: Uh, headline comment for me was I was not excited going into this at all, even though it was the first episode of Doctor Who in a year. Uh, in fact, the first time a Christmas special has followed a Christmas special, if I think about it. But there was just no excitement, no anticipation for me. The uh, trailers and the uh, two-minute preview for Children in Need left me cold. I had fairly low expectations.
1: Uh, yeah, I can probably echo that. Not Not low expectations because I thought it would be terrible... Low expectations because it's been a busy year. Doctor Who hasn't really been part of my, um, you know, well, we haven't been watching Doctor Who this year. So it's kind of had to come back into the front of my mind. So I just haven't really been thinking about this episode until it came on.
0: Yeah, that's probably a good way of looking at it too. It it just didn't have that build up, that anticipation because, as you say, it has been quite quite the year. Well, how do we start? Do you want to uh, ask me for any one of these notes? (laughs)
1: Yeah, give us us one of your biggest thumbs up to start off. That'll be a good note to start, I think.
0: Biggest thumbs up. Oh, okay. Well, I've got four thumbs up. Uh, Okay. now this is a good one. Nardole. I think Nardole could prove surprising in series 10. He uh, took some serious turns in this episode, like when he was explaining River at the end. And what River meant to the Doctor, but then he signed off with a really dopey sort of mm, "bye," and it seems that he's a lot more smarter than he acts. I like the fact he was flying the TARDIS, which is more of a clue that he's smarter than he seems. And I do like the fact the Doctor's running around with a bloke, something I always want to see more of because I think it's an interesting dynamic. It's a bit different, gets us away from the um, "Willie or won't he?" with the companion kind of thing. And um, yeah, I I've not been that. Impressed that Matt Lucas has come back, and he still looks like Matt Lucas on the screen, so that's kind of distracting. It's like, oh, there's the Doctor with Matt Lucas, not there's the Doctor with Nardole. But some of his lines, some of the ways he acted, I thought if he continues this in Series 10, he might be more surprising than I give him credit for at the moment.
1: Well, I'm afraid, Rob, I'm going to have to disagree. I had Nardole as one of my big thumbs down. In fact, the note that I've made here is, after 53 years, Doctor Who has its cousin Oliver. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. My, my reason for this is that, look, you're right, he had some nice moments, and the TARDIS flying scene was probably the best moment he had. But in what was meant to be a drama, whether it was a science invasion type drama or a rom-com type drama, I'm not sure, and I think we'll cover that, But it was meant to be a drama that was building a narrative and that was building tension and building interest. But it kept being punctured. Clearly the production team thought that Nadal had to have a little one-liner in there. And it felt like I was watching the Drew Carey show try to force its way into an episode of Doctor Who where every couple of beats you've got to have, oh, this character comes out with a a witty one-liner or a funny little gag or a funny noise that to me just completely punctuated the rest of the story, I didn't think it gelled with the rest of the story. I think it was inserted for the sake of being inserted. And, and that's the same problem I've always had with Strax. I've never really cared much about the whole Strax undermining the rest of the Sontarans, whatever, don't care. I didn't like when Strax punctuated serious moments with a stupid NAF one-liner. And Nardles seems to be doing that, and that's not the way I like my television.
0: Do you think it was more because it was a Christmas episode or do you get the feeling this is how he, he may play it in Series 10?
1: Yeah, look, I'm willing to keep my mind open on that one. I hope that it is a Christmas-type thing, trying to insert that levity. I hope that having done the, well, we've got Matt Lucas and, well, we've got come back and we've got to make use of him and give him a funny line, it's a Christmas special, they will push him more, as correctly observed, down that intelligent and dramatic path. I don't need a character in Doctor Who making silly noises. I just don't.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's fair. I know exactly what you mean about the one-liners and stuff, although I did like when he returned in in Chinese garb for a scene. I thought, oh, he's been to Marco Polo. Uh, Unfortunately not.
1: (laughs) Yeah, look, as I say, that was probably his best scene. He had a lot of other parts that just annoyed me, and there were a couple of points, particularly in the latter half of the story, where I was starting to drift a little bit, and his unnecessary, in my view, one-liners really got my going up a bit, I have to say.
0: Oh, fair enough. All right, shall we move on from Nardole? Uh
1: Yes, well, you've given me one of your big thumbs up, which didn't prove to be one of mine. What's, what's your what's a thumbs down?
0: <laughs> okay, thumbs down. I'll pick one of these at random. Uh, okay, the intro, where Grant is a kid. Um, it's our first Doctor Who in a year. And it's Capaldi doing this overly nice, cutesy routine with a kid, almost like he's hanging out with a fan. Almost like how you see him in some YouTube videos. And on rewatch, it's probably going to be much better than I think, but it's not really how I wanted the show to start. I was getting distracted by thinking, oh, it's Capaldi and a kid, oh no, no, let's get past this scene, let's get into something but uh, that said, I did like the way he got his superpower. I thought that was quite imaginative and uh, interesting.
1: Well, Rob, I'm going to have to disagree with you once again.
0: <laughs> People think we planned this. I swear.
1: No, well, we got... <laughs> that's very funny. I really liked the introduction. I, as you said, we, I came into this, not quite sure what to expect with no real premonitions at all, because it hadn't been in my brain space. And, I thought it was quite funny. I thought it was quite mysterious. You know, what's going on here? The kid actually was a reasonable actor for a child actor, I thought, and carried his part really well. And I actually laughed out loud at the line, hang on, I need to check with mum. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was just a really clever thing. Uh, look, look, I, I get what you're saying. Um, the bit where Capaldi fell past the window and then suddenly, no, he's latched onto the ledge, I thought it was a bit silly. But, yeah, I do agree with you, absolutely, that the way he got his powers was really interesting because i think the one thing we really were wondering about leading up to this was whether the superhero was going to be a kick-ass slash batman style superhero where it's an everyday normal in inverted commas citizen who uses technology to do superhero-like things or whether there will be a science fantasy explanation for it and there clearly was and it made sense and it worked and i think that actually carried the episode quite well so yeah that was a big thumbs up for me
0: Okay, all right. It's interesting you mentioned that scene of him falling past the window, even swinging past the window and saying oh hello or whatever he's saying as he swung past each time. I at times like this this will make me sound like an ancient fanboy at the age of 41, but I sometimes think is that Peter Davison doing that? Is that William Hartnell doing that? Is is that in other words is is that really the doctor doing that? Uh, it it just there are things the doctor does in some of these modern episodes that I just it just doesn't gel with me as, as something the character would do. I know that must sound weird, and I know characters can change, but I guess it it's such a... I don't know. It's such a Moffat thing, maybe. I, I, I don't know what to what to say about it.
1: I, I don't think it's so much characters changes, television changes, and this is television. So I, I didn't have the same issue you did. Had the whole episode been in that style, then yes, I would have, but I thought it was a nice, harmless opening. I,
0: I didn't mind it. Okay oh that's good
1: so let's see if we can get some unanimity on a wtf moment
0: (laughs) okay (sighs) okay this this one's actually debatable but i'll just throw it out there the tardis can now apparently go to new york city i i didn't think it was allowed to go there ever again
1: (laughs) oh neat pickup thank you i didn't i didn't pick that one up that's Look, that's good. Um, it would be stupid if it couldn't. In fact, it was stupid when it happened. We all called it out as being one of the most stupid things in the series when the Doctor couldn't rescue those because, you know, a convenient plot device said he couldn't.
0: Apparently, they couldn't get on a boat and sail to London and get picked up there.
1: I don't even London. I, 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 I keep saying that the perfect end of that episode, the most logical end, after Rory's been taken back by the Angel, the Doctor just says to Amy, right... Here's a hundred bucks. Find Rory. Meet me on Christmas Eve at the Washington Monument, so the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, and um, I'll, I'll pick you up there.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like they really, really wanted to get rid of them, and they had to get rid of them, but they didn't want to kill them, and it just didn't work at all.
1: No, it, it really didn't. So, look, I'm I'm very happy to pretend that a whole lot didn't happen, and we can go back to New York. New York is my absolute favourite city outside Australia. So I'm. Very happy to see Doctor Who sat there. And, yeah, good pickup
0: though. I didn't think of that at all. Yeah, no, it was the first thing I thought of when I realised where they were. I thought, he's not meant to be here. Okay. So, yes, that was a WTF moment for me.
1: All right. Let's go back to a thumbs-up and see if we can agree.
0: (laughs) Fingers crossed. Um, Okay. Stephen Moffat had likened this to a Christopher Reeve Superman story. And definitely there was humor, um, which I think worked well in some scenes, like where uh, the the ghost had his mask off and he's trying to talk to Lucy and she's just not looking at him. And yet when she finally looked back to him, he'd had to actually put it back on. I totally got where that humor was coming from. And although other bits of humor in the episode didn't resonate with me, and, and bits of humor like Nardole in particular didn't resonate with you, it sounds, I actually quite liked that that scene and the humour in that sort of Christopher Reeve Superman vein. Because the Christopher Reeve Superman films do have humour in them. They're not They're not like um, a modern Superman film, which is more sort of grimdark.
1: Well, Rob, I agree.
0: <gasps> oh! <laughs> I just fell off my chair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, I, I, I'm, I'm not a comic book fan at all. I, I don't read comic books. I am a fan of movies, so I've obviously seen a lot of comic book movies. Being in that sort of middle space, I certainly found a lot of the little visual signals, the little bits of humour, the little tropes, I did recognise. Whether it was, as you say, the scene with the mask and that whole punctuating the fact that no one can tell that Superman with glasses on is Clark Kent, you know, that wonderful conceit. Whether it was the look of the building that had the little globe on the top that is obviously meant to represent um, the buildings you see in uh, uh, Superman-type comics. Uh, lots of little things like that. I thought it did do a really nice job of making it feel like it was paying a certain homage to that genre. I thought without becoming trapped in the genre, it, it did deliver that really nicely and wasn't too much, wasn't too little. I like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's pretty much spot on with me. Oh, look, I'm glad we agreed on something.
1: Well, should we try? Should we try for a thumbs down?
0: Ooh. Okay. Uh, all right. Thumbs down, the fact that this might have felt more zeitgeisty if it had been done, say, three years ago, and ideally with Matt Smith, it, in some ways it didn't feel like the Capaldi Doctor sat quite that well in it. I could just imagine Matt Smith playing with this a bit more, maybe fitting into the story a bit more, and as I say, it would definitely be more zeitgeisty if it had been done three years ago. It's. I know superhero films are still absolutely massive, and it would be wrong for me to say they're not, but... We are at the point, and you sort of saw this in the lead-up to this episode, where people are like, oh, superheroes, are you kidding? Uh, I'm over superheroes. So that was kind of a thumbs-down to me. It just didn't quite feel like a Capaldi story.
1: Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. Because, not 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 necessarily for it being a thumbs-up or thumbs-down, I, I actually think this is the right time to be puncturing this genre because it is now at a point where it's chinks in the air. Uh, showing where you can't just put Batman and Superman in a movie together and assume everybody will love it. Even before the Your, your Mum's Name's Martha 2 moment, which destroyed the entire movie, that movie was not a bad film, but it wasn't a great film. Suicide Squad, I don't think, was a great film. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're starting to see that this, this genre is not invulnerable, which is the, exactly the right time, I think, to puncture it. And I actually think if you and I said this in our preview um a month or so ago, if you're going to puncture something with a little bit of pompous humour, isn't Peter Capaldi the guy to do that? You know, Matt Smith making fun of something's kind of like the nerdy kid making fun of something. Who cares? Peter Capaldi can really puncture something. And I, I like the way that he did that in this episode and his one liners, because they were in context and they were about the plot of
0: Okay, very. No, that's a good point of view. I, I can see what you mean. Uh, at the same time, I guess earlier I was talking about scenes I didn't like, like Capaldi with the kid. I was thinking Matt Smith with the kid would have played out better to, for for me. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying in general.
1: I can see that. Yeah, I can see that.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I guess that's where I'm coming from. This is almost a, um, a thread running through it that, oh, I didn't like that scene. Matt Smith might have been better in it. Is this a Capaldi story? I don't know. Mm, I don't know. So, something we should mention, um, is we've both only seen this once in the past hour or so. So, we're yet to really get in and, and decompress from it and maybe even re watch it and, and so on. And, and my opinions may actually change the next time I see it. That's, that's true as well.
1: Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, these are just our initial reactions. Um, I guess before we go on, can I make, perhaps make one of my biggest points? Yes. And it doesn't really sort of fit into any nice little slot. My opinion of this episode changed radically as it unfolded. I started off going, this isn't bad, it's probably a seven. I then started to really get into the plot with the the, the brains of Morphoton or whatever they were in jars and <laughs> so, this is the is an 8. At the 32 minute mark, where it went hard left and turned into a very lame rom com, my interest in this episode dropped off a cliff. It was at the 30 minute mark, that's where they had the split screens where the Grant's talking in one room on the phone, doing the voice, and she's in another room, and the doctor. At that point, I just thought, no, this is cliched, this is unoriginal. This is not what I want in Doctor Who. I have no interest in whether these characters hook up at all. And I started to lie my mark. As we got back to the dramatic plot, my interest uh, increased with it. But the whole rom-com part for me was a big negative in what otherwise was, I thought, a very fun episode. How did you feel
0: about that? (laughs) Well... David, um, It's very funny you should say that that was a, a comment you had to make because it wouldn't fit into these other comments because if I look at one of my thumbs up, I've written. I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I tended to like the episode from the squeezy toy scene onwards. I felt that was really bizarre, like where she, with this psychotic look on her face, she'd sort of squeeze the toy and it'd be like, <laughs> making this really awful sound. And it was bizarre it was well played it was fun and straight after that scene is where we go into that phone conversation the split screens and I thought I'm starting to have fun with this I'm starting to enjoy this have I just fallen in with the tone maybe I've just been so out of practice with Doctor Who and and stuff that maybe it's just taken until this moment to to get into it so the squeezy toy scene I loved and then We had that split-screen scene, which I thought was great. I admit, I'm not really into rom-coms, and I particularly didn't care if they did hook up or not, but that is actually the point where I started to enjoy the episode, I've got to say. (laughs) Oh,
1: wow. Okay. That's really interesting. And and look, this may be, and I'll, I'll give it this, it may be a case of needing to watch in the right moment. For example, if this was a Saturday evening in winter, with someone else on the couch, a couple of glasses of wine and a pizza, maybe I'll go, yeah, this is really fun. In th- When it's 30-something degrees at 9 o'clock in the morning, the day after Christmas,
0: yeah.
1: maybe my mind wasn't ready for rom-com. So I will, uh, and this comes back to the point I really made at the start about how it is a different environment watching it for us here. I would not be surprised when we start to listen to, you know, Blue Box podcast and Diddly Dumb and all those English reviews I'll not be surprised at all if this did work better for them than it did for me, purely based on the environment in which they were watching it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can I can totally see where you're coming from with that because uh, I think tonight I'll watch this with my wife uh, and, I still do, and we'll be on the couch and we'll probably be eating something, but it will be hot, we will have the air con on and I'm not sure we'll be in the mood for that sort of thing either. I'm sure she'll roll her eyes at this far more than I did. But in the right circumstances yeah, I think this can work, because I thought that was hilarious when he's in the kitchen and he's doing his Batman voice, you know?
1: <laughs> I, I, I did, look, don't get me wrong, I did like the Batman voice. I thought that, that was another example of a really nice little puncture of a trope. I liked that. Uh, I just didn't like the rom-com.
0: Oh, that's, that's fair enough. Um, you know, that rom-com element actually leads into one of my wtfs in fact my last wtf or i've got other thumbs up i think i've run out of thumbs down
1: Uh, well do, do the last wtf and then we can finish on some positives
0: okay my next wtf is that grant stops being the ghost way too easily i mean what happens tonight if someone's stuck on a ferris wheel or one of the other things that he was routinely saving prior to the doctor arriving are people just going to die or be badly injured because he's just made this random decision? No, I'm not going to be the ghost anymore. No, I'm giving it up. You know, I that just seemed really weird to me. I thought, if anything, now that the secret was out, he, he'd be more free to be the ghost. <laughs> but I don't know.
1: Yeah, I guess this is one of those points that comes down to how you interpret the meta-text of the episode. I, I kind of agree, just watching it as a superficial viewer it seems like a really strange, silly thing. And you're absolutely right. Don't tell me if he's walking down the street and somebody needs saving, he won't go and save it. Yeah. I would suspect that, if, say, we had JR doing this review, who actively looks for the meta text and the, the the meaning behind script, he would say that this is perhaps a deliberate, again, nod to that genre and the fact that in that genre people do make these life-changing things really easily and give it up really easily. And Maybe that was actually a piece of satire that... Had it been in the middle of the episode, would have looked like satire, but because it was the actual conclusion of the episode, it, it didn't leave room for satire. Does, does that
0: make sense? It does. It does. But I, I was just looking on that completely practical level where I think I, I'm correct in saying I've read Stephen Moffat say this is a world where superheroes don't actually exist. They exist in comic books and that's it. This guy is actually, you know, he's swallowed the alien thing. And that's why he's a superhero, but there are no others. So when he gives up, there's not going to be another superhero stepping in to take his place. So I'm thinking very practically (laughs) that, you know, the next time this kid almost burns in a house fire, oh, he's probably just going to burn because this guy doesn't want to be the ghost anymore. (laughs) But I know what you're saying too.
1: Yeah. And let's be honest, we want to be really pragmatic. Uh, The the what's next for him is actually not going to be that simple either, because now that his identity is known or his his existence has been confirmed etc presumably you will get a number of organizations involved will you will he see unit knocking on the door going hey we could do with your help will he see torchwood knocking on his door going you're a threat to humanity we need to keep you locked up you know how how does the world play out for him at this point does everyone go oh he's hung up his mask that's finally leave him be
0: well, it, it's interesting. What else is interesting? Of course, we had Unit in the episode, and at the very end, Unit's now been infiltrated by one of these aliens—aliens aliens, who we haven't even mentioned yet. Were in the wedding of River Song, which was another throwback to uh, to that episode as well, as well as mentioning River and the twenty-four year night and all of that. These uh, these aliens had been in it. I think one of them kept the uh, the payment for River Song in his head and pulled his head off and gave her the payment in in that. Um, And the a reason I remember this so clearly is because the Wedding of River Song did screen on Christmas Day here yesterday uh, on ABC uh, on television, and I watched a bit of it.
1: Yes, it did. I saw about 10 minutes of it as well, but not that 10 minutes. I missed that, I have to say.
0: So I don't know whether that was just a a quirky sort of ending, like, oh, unit's been infiltrated, but it doesn't go anywhere, or whether in Series 10, if unit's involved, maybe they pop up again, because they do seem to be a creation of Moffat's and one that he might be keen to, to use here and there.
1: Yeah, look, I would be disappointed if, having laid that groundwork, they didn't use it again, but I guess we'll see.
0: All righty. That leaves... Uh, well, it actually only leaves one um, thumbs-up left for me, and it doesn't actually relate to the episode either. Uh, so I'll throw it out there. It's the Series 10 trailer. Uh, I thought it looked quite good, and I know trailers can make even a dog of a story look amazing, but at the same time, it's hard to fake visuals, I mean, none of the Doctor Mysterio trailers thrilled me at all, but some of the visuals and costumes and locations in the trailer really made me sit up and be quite interested, particularly the uh, the period piece uh, where we saw some old-timey sort of soldiers and Bill in some older-looking clothing. I thought, oh, I really want to see what that's about. That's, that looks interesting to me. And instantly I was grabbed, not because the trailer was saying, here is something interesting you will be grabbed by, but because there were bits and pieces and visuals that i i really want to know more about and as i say the the mysterio trailer never did that for me at all i was like oh yeah all right okay but this actually quite excited me i don't know how you felt about it
1: i I have a thumbs up and a thumbs down for the trailer my thumbs up is kind of like yours there were a number of little images and little moments that did make me go oh that looks kind of cool i wonder how that comes about Uh, knowing that you really can't read too much into these trailers. But, yeah, there were some nice little teasing images in there that I thought, yep, good, Doctor Who's coming back, time to start getting excited. My thumbs down. If I was Pearl Mackey and I just saw that trailer, I would be asking some very serious questions about why they've made me look so annoying in the one trailer she's got before her debut.
0: By asking all the questions?
1: By asking all the questions. I am absolutely certain that the bill portrayed in this trailer is not going to be a fair reflection of Pearl Mackey's character. But God, it was hard to like her in this. I, I don't know whether it was the tone or the questions or just, I don't need that in a companion. I, I just don't. And so whilst I don't think it's what we're going to get, I just thought the trailer was cut in a way that did not do her character any favors whatsoever. And particularly anybody who's already a little bit cynical about her based on the, little teaser that they dropped what months ago now hmm. this will sort of reinforce the negative parts of that and i don't think that's fair to her
0: yeah i, I hear you and obviously these are things that she will say in episodes uh, unless they do a rogue one and they cut out all the uh the trailer bits from the actual <laughs> end product uh but that's another story uh these are things she does say but does she say them in such rapid succession no i, I don't think so so Obviously, this is this is her character to some degree, but this was it turned up to eleven in a very unrealistic way.
1: Exactly, and out of context, I, I don't think that was fair to her. I thought it was a very badly cut trailer for her.
0: Okay, but some of the scenes did interest you. Did did, did the period piece uh, or or whatever it might be interest you, where she's in the uh, old old timey clothes? Yeah, the period piece did. The stuff that looked like it was filmed out in the US West did. Uh, I
1: didn't have a lot of time to grab anything the, the only part i did look back on was it almost looked like david bradley was in there for one but it, it wasn't him so i thought no they're not doing a heart no crossover <laughs> uh, but no I, I look i i've long ago given up trying to microanalyse these trailers because you can't and it's not time well spent so yeah good visuals we'll see where the series takes us in a few months time
0: all righty which uh brings us to scores. Are you at a point now where you could even put a score on the Christmas special?
1: Yeah, look, so do you want me to go first?
0: Oh please.
1: Okay, so I I tried taking my high point, which was an eight, and my low point, which was a five, and averaging them. And that gave me six point five. And that, that to me is not fair. So I've given it a bonus half a point for a bit of extra fun. It was Christmas time. And I'll, I'll settle on a 7, but that's a 7 that's an average of some very high points and some annoying low points.
0: Interesting. All right, because I've got mine written here in front of me, and I'm, I'm here listening to you and thinking, oh, this is going to be quite interesting. Go on. My gut feeling was a 6 out of 10. Um, yep. But with another watch and more consideration, it's probably going to end up closer to 6.5 out of 10 for me <laughs> because i can watch it and i can see how this scene is technically right and that bit's well acted and and the creatures returning from the wedding of river song is still quite freaky when they pull their heads off and and everything's doing exactly what it should be doing but it just didn't connect with me in any sort of gut way you know certainly not like i don't know katherine jenkins singing abigail's song at the end of a christmas carol you know, where I just dissolve into tears if I don't watch myself. You know, so I, yeah. I know I can be pulled into cheesiness and, and schmaltziness, and if that's a word, and, and, and fun, and all these things that the Christmas specials really try to, to turn the volume up on. Um, you know, as much as anyone, you know, if something connects with me, it, it does really connect, and I'll, I'll be happy to say so. But this one, the whole package, it's a bit of a swing and a miss for me. I, it doesn't mean I turned off halfway through or I'm going to run around on social saying horrible things about it and basically, you know, freaking the F out about it like some people are already doing. Um, it just wasn't for me. And I'm, I'm okay with that, genuinely. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next yeah. series now. I'm cool. You know, so I, it's a 6 out of 10, but it, it really probably is a 6.5 out of 10. So I'm, I'm slightly below where you are. It sounds like we're in similar territory, but maybe for different reasons.
1: Look, it, it, it's it's an arbitrary scale, so it's... um, <laughs> yeah, You know, I don't think you'll take it too bad. I think I think we're both in the same sort of ballpark. Um, the final just little sort of takeaway I did want to mention, and it sort of stands aside from the episode. When I go back to Series 3, I really like Series 3. Some of my favourite episodes of the new series are in Series 3, and Martha remains still my favourite of the companions, or at least of the female companions in the, in the new series. But the biggest part I hate about Series 3 was the doctor spending all this time going oh gee you're good but you're not rose if only rose was here she would be better mm. i miss rose and if we're going to get a series of the doctor saying the same thing about river song i will get very annoyed very quickly because i don't need that in doctor who i don't need the doctor to be in some sort of breakup rom-com i don't think river song was that wonderful a character to really get hung up about anyway <laughs> so i hope that we can just put a full stop on River Song and it's not going to be a series of, oh, I'm so lonely now because River Song was so amazing and now I can't see her because because although I could travel in time and see her all through her life, I can't do it. Whatever. Don't care. Move on.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Go, go become a character in class.
0: Well, <laughs> indeed. Uh, look, I think I've got bad news there because I think that whole – final scene was setting it up that Nardol is around to sort of help him through this and then we had sort of PCAP with this furious look on his face starting up the TARDIS and with his shirt unbuttoned which I thought was actually quite a good look for the shirt to be unbuttoned mm. uh, by the by but getting back to him he had this furious look on his face and I thought after such a fun rompy episode to suddenly be like incredibly pissed off seemed really weird in fact it almost felt like he'd left without Nardole because we didn't see sort of Nardole come onto the ship and have a conversation or anything <laughs> Nardole wandered off next thing PCAP got cranky and took off um, <laughs> I thought it was a very weird end to the episode but I think that is setting up at least to some degree that he will be missing her and a bit unhinged
1: you're probably right but I'm not going to judge it until it happens.
0: All righty. Final thoughts for me, um, and I touched on this earlier about the episode feeling so Moffat um, because there was a point where I'm just looking at it and I'm thinking, I'm not sure another showrunner would make Doctor Who like this. This is so Moffat. And I think it highlighted once again for me personally that maybe he stayed too long. I think that whole leaving last Christmas deal might have been a better sort of thing for all of us. And and having Series 10 and Christmas next year in someone else's hands. I mean, as he's saying in Doctor Who magazine this month, you know, people are asking me, what's it like to leave? And he's like, well, I'm still around for another year. I'm going to be doing publicity in 12 months' time, you know. Um, And this doesn't mean that I'm writing Moffat off at all. I'm sure J.R. Southall's smashing his MP3 player at this point. I think. Moffat is, is fantastic and has written some of the best New Who stories ever but people can't yes. stay in jobs for too long you know whether they're Prime Ministers or TV showrunners or whatever they are they can stay too yep. long and I just think he has I, I mean there's no Doctor Who showrunner or production team I would have liked to have seen last forever or even a lot longer than they did not Dixon and Letts or Holmes and Hinchcliffe not even Cartmell I think he was up to one more season than he had to be off you know yep. and I think Moffat has maybe stayed a series and a christmas special too long by the time we see the back of him next year
1: i again think that's a reasonable argument if moffat can just bring the fun next series then that's okay if it does become moffat doing a parody of moffat that could be quite awful but we'll find out
0: yeah look i, I think we we probably agree and i think we've heard other people say it that If anything, next series will be a whole new thing. Um, You know, Moffat does like to reinvent things and do things differently. And and gosh, it could be fantastic. Who knows? You know, I'll I'll certainly go into it with an open mind.
1: Yeah, and and I'm somebody who has liked Moffat's two Capaldi series significantly more than I liked his three Smith series. So perhaps because I sort of divorced the two eras in my mind, I only see this as series three of Moffat slash Capaldi rather than series six of Moffat.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I didn't mind Smith's first series, but I didn't like the next two. So, we're we're similar in that respect.
1: Yeah, I, I think a lot of there, There's a large group of fans, particularly of our vintage, who have similar views on that. I think.
0: Hmm. All right. Shall we put the uh, the lid on the Christmas special? Done. All right. That's done. Dusted like a turkey. Stick a thermometer in it, or whatever you do. I never cook turkey. Um, <laughs> and
1: I, I, again, we're in Australia.
0: Well, I've got to say because my family has European heritage as as does yours obviously. Um on my plate yesterday there was ham, there was uh not duck, uh there was pork, there was lamb and there was something else as well. There's about four different meats uh around on a plate of very hot food. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right, and if you at home have any thoughts on the Christmas episode, we'll be back, or I should say I'll be back at the end of January. David, you'll be sitting out that episode because you'll be overseas, um, and you can tell us your thoughts uh, to hello at the net, and we'll read them out on that episode. Good. Okay. Would you like to introduce this next segment? Sure. So when Rob and I were
1: discussing in the last week what else we were going to talk about as part of... This episode of the Doctor Who show, so that it would be more than just a review, we realised pretty quickly just how quiet it had been, and apart from the little bit of news and gossip that we had at the start, there wasn't really any big topic to to cover, so I suggested maybe we do a bit of a fun thing and look at just a fun topic and maybe a bit of a top ten or a top five that we could fill out the episode and just, you know, give everybody a bit of a laugh, and then, Rob, you suggested that maybe we could make it a bit of a nostalgia fest, which I thought was a really clever idea, and... I'll pass over to you for how you twisted this into what we've got.
0: Yeah, look, I thought Christmas is a, is a time for young people. I, I notice this more and more each year because my wife and I don't have kids. And when I look around at friends who do have kids, I think, wow, they are into Christmas way more than I am. And I think it's solely because of the kids. And that just got me thinking that if we're going to talk top five, something like top five movies we liked or top five TV shows we liked or whatever it is, Let's think back to when we were kids, uh, you know, that sort of more magical time that Christmas is really about and sort of generates if you do have young people around you. And so I threw it out there that maybe from the ages of up to about 16, what did we watch? What was magical when we were young on, uh, on television? And uh, you seem to quite enjoy that. So I've jotted down five uh, five TV shows. I'm sure you've got the same. And yes. we may have some bingo moments because uh, we're of a similar vintage. I mean, you're in your 30s, I'm in my early 40s, but it's a similar sort of vintage, especially when you come to repeat television in Australia with some <laughs> things which is repeated decade after decade. Um, Absolutely. And I'm really curious to see how this might go. So uh, if, if you're only into us for the Doctor Who, please feel free to turn off now, but we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different TV shows.
1: And, yeah, as you say, hopefully some ones will bring back some good childhood memories for uh, many of our listeners as well.
0: Mm. How should we do this? Who should go first?
1: Uh, oh, look, I'll, I'll go first. So I've, I've actually ranked them um, not in terms of best to worst, because, I mean, how do you rank a kid's TV show? Yeah. But but chronologically, so these are shows that will grow up as I grew up. So for number five, I've gone with Astro Boy.
0: Oh, Great choice, great choice. Not not a snap, but wow, I was into that.
1: Yeah, this, this was a show that from a very early age, it was shown when I was young at seven o'clock, and this was the show that you would get out of bed and sit quietly in front of the TV to watch. A lovely show that was originally, I believe, a Japanese anime that was then edited and dubbed for an English audience. Um, infamously, the first episode of Astro Boy was actually almost cut in half Oh, here, and, and there's, there's scenes that are actually in flashbacks later in the series that were never shown in Australia as part of the first episode here. But it's about a all-powerful robot that looks like a boy that's in the future, and he fights baddies, and he fights aliens, and he fights robots, and it, there's a whole universe out there, and it's a wonderful adventure to watch as a kid. But it's also incredibly dark in some points. Like, there's actually some real nasty moments where – The Earth almost gets destroyed where uh, Atlas's brother robot, who's his adversary for most of the series, they reconcile and then he sacrifices himself. It's a really kind of... I don't think you'd make this show for kids today. So I really loved it. Astro Boy was the big thing for me when I was really young.
0: Absolutely. Um, And this is obviously the colour version. There was a black and white 60s version, which is almost the same show, same animation style, same everything, Um, but they made this colour version.
1: Then there was a remake in around about the late nineties, I think, which is similar but a very big rewrite.
0: Yes, I'm I'm aware of it, and I've never actually watched it. Never even sought out a trailer or anything like that. It, it kind of sat back in my childhood as something I loved then, and I didn't want to go back to now. Similar to Thunderbirds, I don't want to go back to the new Thunder. I don't want to go to the new Thunderbirds because you know I've already done that when I was a kid. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Also, on Astro Boy. Um, I, I did watch it, uh, similar to you. It was an afternoon show uh, show for me, um, possibly at, in the 5.30 sort of time slot, as I recall, when I was watching it. This would be in the earlier 80s, I guess. Um, I loved it.
1: It did float around a bit. I'm, I'm sure you're right, it was in a number of slots over the years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Astro Boy is a great character. He has a machine gun in his butt. Um <laughs>
1: Which lasers you... in his fingers and and this is the thing no nobody today if you walked into the BBC or CBN or whatever today and said I've got this idea for a kids cartoon show he has a machine gun in his ass it would <laughs> never get commissioned
0: <laughs> yeah exactly um no i i used to love that 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 show very very much and you mentioned that there were some quite dark things in it in fact one of the episodes having been cut as well I think this will become a theme as we get into some uh, some more animated things. Certainly in my lists that come out of Japan, and certainly had that vibe to them.
1: I reckon I know what one of yours is going to be based on that clue, but we will see.
0: Interesting.
1: Okay, so your number five.
0: My number five. Let's see. I, I I've got them here in um, one to five order. So I'm going to scroll down to number five. My number five is He Man and the Masters of the Universe. Yeah, nice pick. Yeah. Now, for those who never saw it, this was a, an American animated television show based on a line of toys, which came out in about 1982. And interestingly, the one takeaway I can remember from um, being a kid watching it is I had the toys. I had lots of the toys, actually, including the big Castle grayscale playset and all of that stuff. The toys came with books. And in the books, He-Man was a much different character to what he was in the animated series. In the books, or booklets, I should say, they're not, they're not novels, uh, he was more of a um, Robert E. Howard, Conan the Barbarian kind of guy, and the artwork was very dark, and the stories were quite uh, tough and violent, much more so than the uh, the animated series, which was a lot brighter, a lot, a lot happier, and always seemed to have a moral sort of at the end of the show. They made tons of these I had to look this up They made only two series But each series was 65 episodes apiece So Wow Yeah, there's 130 episodes of this kicking around out there And they have subsequently made new, new versions of He-Man too So there's other animated series out there uh, as well But this is the original one I'm talking about The Filmation one Where uh, He-Man comes out at the start and says Fabulous secret powers were revealed to him by Castle <laughs> Greyskull Which always used to make me chuckle in, in later years The use of the word fabulous there uh, By a muscle-bound man in a loincloth. Um yeah, look, just lots of warm memories of this watching it before uh I went off to school in the mornings. It was very much a a morning sort of program Monday through Friday, and I can remember watching it on weekend cartoon shows as well. And with 130 episodes out there, I've probably seen them all two or three times each. Yeah, no, I have the same memories
1: as you. This was a fixture in 80s Australian kids TV as you say it was just repeated ad nauseum of course there was shira which was the like version for girls yes which was very clever marketing on their part but yeah absolutely the same as you i had the castle gray skull playset. i had some of the action figures um including the one that you put the caps into the back of the and, and the super punch he-man or something i think it was called and you put a little gunpowder cap in the back of him and he made a big bang as he punched something it was again what sort of toys were these for (laughs) six-year-olds
0: oh cap cap guns in general were fantastic back in the 80s you wouldn't get away with them today
1: yeah really good pick
0: all righty what's your number four
1: my number four is another cartoon but going on a few years later called the mysterious cities of gold
0: oh it's again not a snap but oh beautiful choice yes
1: so it's it was a french japanese collaboration then dubbed into English. And they made another series as well, which could have been on my list, which was Ulysses 31, which is also incredibly good. But Mysterious Sinners of Gold is a adventure series about a young boy who is called the child of the sun. He lived growing up in uh, 15th century Barcelona at the time of the great exploration of the new world. And because of these mythical powers that they think he has, he's taken by a bunch of Spanish explorers uh, off to South America, the ship crashes. He meets up with a couple of other kids, one of whom's um, an Inca princess. The other's a last descendant of the people of Heva. They get from the Galapagos into South America and they meet and interact with all of these historical figures, Cortez, the Inca civilization, the Maya civilization. There's a little bit of compression of timelines there so the civilizations can all sort of overlap and work. The Olmecs come in as well and that's a bit more sci-fi. But the aim is to find the mysterious cities of gold that have been scattered by an ancient civilization across South America. And it is a wonderful adventure. It's an imaginative adventure. It had kids and adults that were interacting really well. But when you look it up now, a lot of the locations where they were shot, not shot, but drawn, are exact um, drawings of real, you know, real temples and real bits of architecture and real jungles. And it's really well done. But famously it finished every episode with a sort of a two-minute documentary yes. about the stuff that had been in that episode, which was, again, really fascinating. And this, this show, I, I loved it as a kid. I've got the DVD set, and I can still watch it now as an adult and appreciate it, but it has sparked in me a love of that ancient world that has stayed with me today. So really memorable series. And Ulysses, the them, which was much more hardcore sci-fi, in fact, some of the same actors was also really good, but that's my number four.
0: Oh, fantastic choice, and uh, I remember those little documentaries at the end, they'd always be shot on film, and it would look like, (laughs) you know, although this is back in the 80s, it would look like there was was a film shot in maybe the 60s, it always looked really old to me. (laughs) Yeah, the actual (laughs) footage they would show, you know, and they'd they'd talk about the local markets or, you know, just interesting things about South America. uh, The
1: wildlife and the religions and the cultures and all that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: and one thing I do remember about this show is that it was a co-French production. Yes. And the reason I remember this is because, oh, a year or so ago they kick-started a Mysterious Cities of Gold video game. Have you seen that?
1: no i didn't
0: know about that yeah yeah they kick-started a pc game and it was made by a french studio working with all the original art assets and all that sort of stuff a beautiful it's its almost like you're playing the cartoon it's it's quite amazing um and it, that reminded me oh yes because this was originally a co-french production so they've got a french studio making this in different languages so yeah i remember that well and i used to love the theme music Yes, very, very memorable. Very distinctive theme music. So, oh, fantastic choice. Your number four. My number four. Um, I'm wondering when we're going to get a bingo on some of these because we've obviously both watched all these shows. <laughs> we have, yes. My number four is Monkey.
1: Oh, okay. Not a snap, but, yeah, another one I watched.
0: <laughs> often often referred to by people as Monkey Magic, you know, because that was yes. the show's theme song, but it was actually just called Monkey. Um Based on um, oh, what do they call it? Trip, trip to the west, or journey to the east, or something or other. It's journey, very journey to the
1: east, yeah. Journey to India or journey to the east, yeah.
0: There you go. Very, very famous Chinese story. And uh, in this, you have uh, monkey, who is a god, who's released from his, uh, his. Uh... <laughs> His stone He's egg. Jesus. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he takes on this pilgrimage with a monk called Tripitaka to go to India to get some um, some holy scriptures. And along the way, they're joined by two other sort of um, fallen, not gods, but sort of uh, heavenly heavenly uh, hosts, I guess. Who Spirits. Are... Spirits. Exactly. Spirits. Um, Sandy and Pigsy. And Sandy is sort of like a um, a water monster, and Pigsy is sort of a half pig man and they get around uh, China and Mongolia and places like that, having these crazy adventures. And um, with it being dubbed into English in quite a humorous way, it just got a massive cult following. I was watching this in the very, very early 80s in Australia, so I was like six or seven, eight years old. But it also got a bit of a revival. Um, there was a TV show, a music TV show called Recovery back in the 90s, uh, or was it early two thousands? Maybe both, where they would actually play episodes of Monkey as well. So yeah. um, it got a it got a
1: a real cult following in that one.
0: Oh, massively, and and across different generations too, like my generation who originally watched it in the eighties, and then a more sort of alternative indie kid generation who are watching it during recovery uh, later on. It's it's a classic,
1: and with the Doctor Who link.
0: Oh, tell me more. You know who played the
1: dub the English dub of Monkey no david collins no really fair dinkum he did not want to be credited for it and you won't see it but if you listen it is absolutely david collins from robots of death <sighs> and, and Water
0: <laughs> wow i did not know that oh very nice doctor who link there dave i, I hope i'm right <laughs> <laughs> the lawyers are calling already
1: but yeah that, that was on for a long time again repeated and um Yeah, no, Google Google is telling me I'm right, so that's good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On your Google. Dave, what is your number three?
1: My number three, I couldn't – I was picking between two Tony Robinson series here. Uh, I almost went for Made Marin and Her Merry Men, which was a very fun show that Tony Robinson wrote. But I'm going to go with something something a little bit more obscure, which is a series called um, Odysseus, the greatest hero of them all, which was basically a series – where Tony Robinson, obviously famous for Blackadder and many other things, simply narrated for five minutes each episode a passage of story from the Iliad and the Odyssey. So the whole story about the Trojan War and then Odysseus's 10 year trip to get back to his home and his wife Helen and his son Telemachus. And Tony Robinson would just do this in this really weird but wonderfully engaging way that has stayed with me twenty five thirty years later, and I remember just being absolutely gripped by this wonderful ancient story, but he he would do little quirks so if he's doing for example, the five minute episode about Odysseus and the lotus eaters, he would do it in a pokeys venue or you know a really, a really dodgy casino to to try and give that sort of vibe or um where he's tempted by the the witch Cersei and her poisoned food he would do it in like a really bad seaside restaurant so but it was just this really funny and engaging example of, of of just a really good actor telling a classical story. And it stayed with me for a long time. And I've, I'm still struggling to track down episodes and see it again. But yeah, Odysseus, The Greatest Hero of Them All by Tony Robinson.
0: I have got to say, I have no recollection of this, even though I love Tony Robinson. I love, obviously, what the topic is about. I love ancient history. I have no recollection of this, although if if you, if you I saw an episode, if you showed me one, I'd probably go, oh yeah, I saw that. But off the top of my head, I cannot remember that at all. That's something for me to hunt down.
1: Yeah, look, it could be that this is where the difference in age between us has come into play, because I reckon it wasn't shown, I reckon by the time it was first shown, you would have been just outside that early childhood demographic and maybe just missed it.
0: I'm on a mission now to track that down. I'm on my own odyssey. All right, what about you? Well, this could be a cross-promotional opportunity for yourself here, because I'm going to pick The Goodies.
1: Oh, well done.
0: <laughs> not, not a snap?
1: No, not a snap, because I, I wasn't sure if I could really count it as kids' TV. You you obviously have, and we obviously watched it as kids, but I did did contemplate it.
0: Well, that's, of course, the interesting thing. For people who aren't listening to your excellent podcast on The Goodies and have heard about this, in Australia, The Goodies was edited down in some cases and, and certainly shown as children's fair say 5.30 or 6 o'clock on a weeknight rather than at when was it the first series like 10.30 on Sundays I think you were saying on the podcast
1: yeah so in the UK some episodes in series one went out as late as 10.50 on a Sunday night in the UK so a very different time slot to what it was shown out here
0: definitely and and as I say some episodes out here were edited um or maybe maybe not shown at all am I right in saying that with the the Playboy Club one
1: yeah, there were about half a dozen episodes that weren't part of the ABC's regular repeat for a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah. In- including
1: the Patrick Shouten episode.
0: Very interesting. Another Doctor Who link, of course. <laughs> and one thing I, I'll i just pull out at random in terms of editing. Sometimes scenes were cut completely. In in others, like I can remember on Australian TV, the sound would be um, erased where a word would be that they didn't want to, to show. And I remember yes. Graham sinking at the end of, uh, I think it's the Pirate Radio episode, and Tim says he would have wanted it this way. And in the version I watched as a kid and watched many times on VHS because i taped it, Bill says, no, he wouldn't. And the <laughs> is where there's just silence. I always thought he said effing there, which is why it was bleeped out. And in my mind, for 20, 30 years, Bill Odie has said, no, he effing wouldn't. And I finally saw it, and he actually says, no, he bloody wouldn't. (laughs) The word is only bloody. I thought it was effing, (laughs) which just goes to show the dangers of censorship.
1: There's an even funnier one, if memory serves correctly, in the Builders episode, where one of the Builders in the actual script says, get stuffed. But rather than making it silent, somebody with a completely different voice, and possibly an Australian accent, has dubbed, get lost, over the top of it. But it doesn't even sound anything like the actor. (laughs)
0: Oh, I want to see that! Uh, <laughs> oh, you can have such fun with um with censorship like that. Um, I think of have you ever seen on YouTube the um uh, the Count video from Sesame Street, where it's a song from Sesame Street where he gets around this haunted house saying, oh, "I'm the Count. I love to count. Yes, um, I, I have. I, I count this. I count that." but they bleep the word count, so it sounds like he's saying yeah. the F word. And it sounds like saying, yes. I F this, I F that, I F the spiders on the wall. <laughs> I lose my mind every time I see that. I laugh till I'm sick and just about fall off my chair. That is the most brilliant thing ever on YouTube.
1: It is, and and to bring it back to Doctor Who from our end, probably the most famous piece of censorship for Doctor Who fans was Caves of Andrazani Part 4, where there's about five minutes cut out of that. So when we watch that on broadcast on the ABC, when they finally showed it, about a year after they showed the rest of season uh, twenty-one. Uh, so, Doctor Who fans, imagine the moment where all the the, the, the military open up the door of Sh- uh, Sharaz Jack's laboratory, and they say something like, "Jack, what are you doing?" Imagine a hard cut there, and then the next moment they pick up is everything on fire and Jack's dead body in the hands of the Salatin android. And everything in between cut. Everything in between. Yeah, Five minutes of the whole confrontation. And we had no idea what the hell had happened in that. But that's how it went out in Australia.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. We, we've had some very harsh censorship over the years. Uh, it's actually paid off in Doctor Who terms. It's obviously how some clips from missing episodes got discovered because our censors had these bits of film they'd cut out of Doctor Who sitting around for years. Yeah, yeah. So there were some benefits to it, but on the whole, yes, yeah, some very weird censorship over the years. And I do remember the Caves of Androsani one vividly. Just a mm. awful, awful cut.
1: Yeah. Right. But yeah, really, really good pick. And of course, if you want to know more about the goodies, look for Goodies Pirate Podcast on Facebook or iTunes and um, listen to what we have to say about it. It's good fun. Where are we up to? Number two?
0: Yeah, you're number two, please.
1: Okay, so I. Again, tossed up between two series here. I, I almost went for The Wonder Years, which was an American show that really was, for a period there, you know, you had to go home to watch it. But I've gone with Press Gang.
0: Oh, yes.
1: And I've gone with Press Gang over The Wonder Years because whilst uh, The Wonder Years is something that I've come to really love a lot more as an adult, I, I, it kind of left me a little bit cold as a kid, and I think my memories of it are more because of me being an adult. Press Gang left me with such an impression at the age of about 12, 13, when it was shown out here, there are moments in that and scenes in that, that still sit with me from my original viewing because Press Gang was wonderfully written by Stephen Moffat, of course, his first big TV program, uh, wonderfully written, really memorable characters, although some of them do look a little bit dodgy you now seen through adult eyes, but it went into really unusual places for kids TV there was a gun siege. There was a um, overdose, or a two overdose deaths across the course of the series. Uh, there was a plot about somebody who was being abused by their parents. Uh, there was a suicide, a gunshot suicide in there. A- and that imagery really stayed with me and those characters stayed with me. And I now watch it again as an adult and, and really remember it. But yeah, Press Gang really impressed me when I was, as I say, about 12 or 13 and has stayed with me.
0: Oh, yeah, look, a a fantastic choice. I have all the DVDs here. They released it locally, at least, each uh, season to a a DVD. (sighs) I was madly in love with Julia Sawala. Um, Probably still am, if if I'm (laughs) honest. Um, As Linda Day, the editor of this uh, student newspaper. Um, Yeah, look. I can't say enough good things about Press Gang. It's it's well worth people watching even now. Obviously, it's it's dated because it's set in a in a different time. You know, um, <laughs> hair was bigger, computers were different, the internet wasn't around, no mobile phones, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But well, well, there's an episode there where they get their first ever computer with an internet connection. You're quite right. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking just on the cusp of sort of. An older world becoming a newer world, but a newer world, which is now quite out of date by today's standards. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, can't, I can't recommend Press Gang enough. Fantastic choice there. I can't believe, though, we're down to our um, our last few and we still haven't had any snaps.
1: <laughs> well, I don't think we're going to now. So uh, what have you got for number two?
0: Number two, I have Star Blazers. Oh, I've heard of that, but I've never seen that one. <gasps> You've never seen it. Oh, my God. I'll have to send you my DVDs or something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll rectify this. Um, basically, there was a uh, a series in Japan called Space Battleship Yamato. Uh, there were three series of this in, um, if I had to take a guess, the mid seventies, the late seventies, and maybe nineteen eighty. Uh, so this is the older sort of seventies style of Japanese anime, all hand drawn. You know, a bit dodgy in places, but but quite all right. And it's the story of. Uh, the Earth being destroyed by radiation. You can sort of see why the Japanese are interested in this based on their experiences in World War II. The Earth is destroyed by radiation and they get a message from a queen of a far-off planet called Iskandar and she says, I have something that will fix the Earth but I've got no way of getting to you. I'm going to send you plans so you can fix up one of your spaceships and fly it over to me. Get, get this thing, take it to your planet, set it up and it will make your planet live again. And of course the, the planet is just stuffed and out in the desert, well it, it's a desert because the ocean has dried up, is the old battleship Yamato from World War Two? And they've secretly been underneath it building a spaceship within its superstructure. And so the end of the, the first episode or the second episode is the Yamato launching out of the desert like all bits of dirt falling off it and it's this spaceship now instead of a World War Two battleship. Um, it's quite pro-Japanese, almost nationalist kind of um, kind of anime in this sense, you know, harking back to their glory days of World War II. We'll gloss over that for the sake of Star Blazers, which doesn't go into that. Star Blazers is the uh, the more sanitized uh, Western version of it, which doesn't delve into these things, aside from the ship being called the Yamato in both. And they take off for Iskandar, and each each episode is a little further on the journey. In fact, at the end of each episode, they'll say... Hurry up, Star Blazers, you have 361 days to go. You have 320 days to go. You you have, you know, and there'd be a countdown at the end of each episode. And I remember as a kid, it might have been one of the first really episodic stories or or, or the one where I remember it the most, because at the end of each episode, I'd feel quite tense. Like, oh, are they going to make it to Iskandar in time? And then even once they get the stuff, will they be able to get back? Because along the way, they're being hassled by the Gamelons who are the people who destroyed the earth in the first place and they're trying to stop them getting there and so it's this very tense space opera on this huge battleship so i think sort of Battlestar galactica meets star wars meets a quest type thing you know it's almost like the odyssey they're off to 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 get this prize and it's great and the first series is is complete uh but the second two series are, are quite worth it as well and coming back to something we said earlier about Japanese shows um, being quite uh, open uh, and showing topics that are dark and and brutal. Sometimes there are characters who die in this, even in the sanitized Western version. There are many scenes which, which stick with me now. Um, Some of them would be spoilers to go into now that I think of it. So I won't go into them, but it's just wonderful. It's, it's older. It's from the seventies, but it's, it's great and it has stayed with me for such a long time
1: okay look I, I did miss out on that one I'll probably just again this is one of just falling a few years the wrong side of it but I might have to check that one out it sounds very interesting
0: yeah yeah it's uh it's great and there was a live action Japanese movie made of the storyline um gosh when was that maybe four or five years ago and that—that's you can buy that quite cheaply on DVD off eBay. And, and that's not bad, you know, to watch a sci-fi movie made in Japan and in Japanese. It's not something we watch every day in our day-to-day lives here in Australia. And it was a lot of fun to watch as well. Deviated in places like movies often do, but um, not bad at all.
1: Oh, very good. Very good indeed.
0: Okay. We're getting down to the business end now. Last one.
1: Okay. So I, I thought that my list should probably have an Australian show in it. But it wasn't hard to pick one. This was always going to be in my list. Now, in Australia, we had a very poor track record of making television, I think it's fair to say. We did sitcoms okay and we did comedies okay and and maybe police dramas, you know, low-budget stuff. But there's not a lot of money sloshing around Australian television. So even when we did do a sci-fi, it was very badly done. Until the 90s, when suddenly the networks discovered that with the advent of CGI – you could actually do a dystopian or a sci-fi or a futuristic show for quite a you know, reasonable budget. So we started to get stuff like uh, Ocean Girl and Thunderstone, which were quite good local Australian-sided fantasy shows. But the one I picked is one that's picked slightly older, and it's called Spellbinder. Now, I don't know if you know this one, Rob.
0: No, not at all.
1: Okay, this was broadcast in about ninety four, ninety five 95 for the first time, And it was a co-production between the ABC here and Poland. I don't know how that co-production came about, but it, it did. And what this show was, was about a high school student who went on a school camp to the Blue Mountains outside Sydney. And because he was doing some weird experiment, shoved himself into a parallel world where Australia had been devastated by some unknown calamity and now... All of the interior of Australia was wiped out, but humanity lived in little sort of colonies around the Blue Mountains, ruled by the Spellbinders, who were the only people allowed to study science. And so they had all the scientific technology, they had the electricity, they knew the power of magnetics, and they would rule this sort of um, reverting to primitivism or agriculturalism society. And it's really cleverly put together. It's beautifully made in the Blue Mountains. So the first half is all about Paul learning about this world and discovering it and trying to get back to our world and then when he does he brings one of the spellbinders back with him and it's all about her trying to regain her powers in modern day sydney and all that sort of thing so it's a really clever adventure and look certainly for the nerds in class when we were sort of about 14 15 this was go home to watch television it probably didn't hurt that we were all teenagers and some of the leading cast were slightly older teenagers who were very easy on the eye (laughs) <laughs> which was again another thing Australian television learned learned to do really well in this period, and modern television now still does. But it was a really clever, well shot adventure that again I can still appreciate as an adult. So Spellbinder from the mid nineties, which of course takes me up to being about sixteen.
0: Wow. That that <laughs> Like, I, I'm very good with television, even when there's stuff that I'm not watching or not interested in. I sort of know that it's going on. That is one that's gone completely past me and straight through to The Keeper, to use a cricket analogy, because we're going to be watching cricket in the next uh, 20 minutes, I'd say. Um, <laughs> I... Um, Absolutely. I... I've, I think that sounds really interesting, and I just sort of have no sort of with these other ones. Just saying, oh, this and that, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's fantastic. I've seen that, great. This, I've I've got no sort of reference for it, and I'm I'm very interested in the sound of that because obviously the Blue Mountains is, well, it's about an hour's drive from where I live. So you know, something set in that area and in the dystopian sort of world. Oh, I'm going to check this out, Dave. That that's actually quite a recommendation for me, if not the listeners.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just put Spellbinder into YouTube, and there's definitely a few clips and maybe even episodes up there, but it's it's quite easily available. So, yeah, check it out.
0: Far out. It, it, it does make me think, how many other things have passed me by? You know, I think I know everything. <laughs> That's
1: right. it's, 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 there's a lot of television out there. So, what's your number one, Rob?
0: My number one, Robotech.
1: Oh, no, I missed that one completely. The one that I thought you were going to actually come up with was when you mentioned Animes and Cuts. I thought you were going to mention Battle of the Planets, but that one's missed us both by, so...
0: No, I could have very easily included Battle of the Planets, you know?
1: Yeah, so could I, but you didn't. You've gone for Robotech. Tell me
0: about it. Robotech. This is really interesting stuff. This is an 85-episode series. However, it's made of three totally different Japanese series, anime series. So in Japan, you had the Super Dimension Fortress Macross, you had Super Dimension Cavalry Southern Cross, and you had Genesis Climber Mos Three completely different series, even though two of them have the word super in the title. Absolutely different, nothing to do with each other. And this guy in the US said, uh, look, to get into syndication, we need to have this many episodes, uh, and we can't do it with one series alone. So let's buy three series, and we'll dub them, and because we can have the characters saying whatever we want, they'll all talk about similar things as if it's successive generations of the same storyline, which will explain why characters in the first series aren't in the second and those in the second aren't in the third. And why the technology of the ships, which are like jet fighters in the first one, will turn into tanks in the second one and I think motorbikes in the third one or whatever the case might be. And it tells this very, very interesting story. I guess similar to uh, Star Blazers and the Earth being attacked by Gamelons. And in Robotech, you have the Earth under attack from the Zentradi. And in Macross, or the Macross episodes of Robotech, the, the first series, you have this very interesting concept where a crashed ship is on Earth, and the, the Zentradi are huge. And so it's this huge ship, and the, uh, the people of Earth actually build a city inside it and repair it and and take it up into space. They so have this bonkers idea that humans are flying around in an alien spacecraft with which they've built a whole city inside. And um, the people who are left on Earth are quite jealous because they get attacked and these other people can zip off to the stars. And it's it's hard to talk about these things without really... Spoiling them in some ways But the first series of Robotech Which is based on the Macross anime Is my favourite You have jets that look like F-14 Tomcats That can turn into giant You know, um, mecha uh, Who can take on these Zentradi Because the, the robot mecha Are the same size as the Zentradi the Giant aliens who are attacking Earth and uh, So many scenes from it So memorable And, like Star Blazers Not afraid to kill off even main characters at times in very violent ways. So, again, something that, you know, I'd be watching, I don't know, The Flintstones or something, even He-Man, who we mentioned earlier, and then I'd watch this, and it would be chalk and cheese. You'd have He-Man giving some sort of, you know, little sermon at the end of each episode, like, oh, that's why you should be nice to your teachers, kids, you know, because they (laughs) teach you, or or whatever they used to say, you know, it would be something ridiculous like that. And then on the other hand, I'd be having the main character in Robotech killed, and if you' like how do these even compare you know it, it was it was a very interesting sort of series to watch at um I think I was aged about ten and and matchbox got involved and and made action figures and spaceships and all sorts of stuff and it was a very big deal for like a year or two around eighty six maybe into eighty seven and uh, very very warm memories of Robotech
1: oh that's really interesting it in thematically it almost sounds a bit like Voltron, which is another cartoon that we didn't mention but it just seems to be the same sort of genre, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I, look, a lot of Japanese animes do have similar themes, like even the, the having the giant mecha and having people pilot them. I mean, that's just repeated again and again and again and again, like in Gundam or or even something more yeah. adult that I've watched in more recent years, like Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is actually my favourite anime of all time. You know, you, you see themes of the Earth being destroyed or bombed or and giant robots and, you know, they are common themes. So, yes, they do sort of get a bit similar at times, but it's it's all in the delivery.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, very interesting. Uh, interesting that across all of our picks, there's been not so much a science fantasy theme, but an adventure thing, a real sort of...
0: Boy's own adventure?
1: Um, yeah, there's been a real sort of boy's own adventure type uh, feel across all of it that, I don't know if modern children's television still delivers in quite the same way. Um, I know people are a lot more cautious about what they let kids watch these days. So, as we said, robots with machine guns up their bottom, those um, <laughs> you epic know, bad guys and characters getting killed and you know all that sort of thing i wonder if kids are missing out these days or do parents sneak on the dvds of these shows anyway or maybe we have no idea what we're talking about rob and people are writing and tell us that kids shows today are just as adventurous and just as violent as they were back in the 70s and
0: the 80s well hello at the dw net if you do want to tell us um for mine i think modern shows do seem to be different i catch them from time to time if i get up early enough and it's before You know, the, uh, the Channel 9 morning news has started on a weekend, or, you know, I flick through the ABC for Kids channel. I do see things, and I think, is this part of a, um, an episodic kind of story, or do, or do the people in this cartoon just have an adventure, and then it doesn't matter from one to the other whether you saw what happened in the previous one, and all they're in the one after. Whereas a lot of these are very dependent on being storylines like Star Blazers. As I say, it counts down at the end of each episode to, to their destination. You, you've got to watch them in order, otherwise it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Uh, and I just don't know whether the shows do that now as anymore, or whether they want each episode to be a possible stepping-on point for, for viewers maybe, so they make them deliberately quite open so that you start at episode 2, 5 or 10. It doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah, whereas that that saga, whether it's Monkey, Cities of Gold, Ulysses Thirty One, uh, Odysseus, a number of the ones that we mentioned, Spellminder, they are actually part of a saga. They're an adventure, and you take a journey with the character, and and you invest in it. And you know, I remember watching Monkey, and you know, you wanted to get to India with them. And and you're right. I think that for commercial reasons, they do try and have a lot more stepping on points for shows, and and that's sad because that 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 journey that adventure is a really important part of literature that should be an important part of kids literature or at least kids television
0: yeah it certainly shaped the way i think about storylines and 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 so on very much uh, probably even more profoundly than i even think i i might sit back today in the in the sunshine and have a, th- a think about that cuz Yeah, I think it has formed me in a certain way that maybe a kid today wouldn't get formed, unless, as you say, their parents do stick on these DVDs for them and say, here, get this into you, it'll do you good.
1: Yeah, interesting. More thought-provoking than I thought that was going to be, but it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, no, great great idea to do a a countdown for our um, special end-of-year episode. It's hard to believe there are now 12 episodes of the Doctor Who show sitting out there, and obviously a whole lot of our spin-offs are now on the feed as well as separate things too. And we're about to step into the new year. Obviously, you're not in the first one, but you will be back in February.
1: Uh, yes, unfortunately, listeners, I'm going to be in the UK for the second half of January. So uh, someone will be stepping into my place, but I will be back in February.
0: Yes, I've, I've got that person lined up. I might keep it a bit of a surprise. They have been on the show before, and no, it's not doc <laughs>
1: not that he would do a bad job he was a very good co-host last time
0: oh he's a fantastic co-host and i hope to have him on again in the future and i hope to do project pertwee with him that we've been planning for years and still never done but uh it's always time isn't it
1: it is it is but um, i may be checking up with a couple of uk podcasters while i'm over there so uh we'll see
0: see if you can take a even even your phone recorder or something and 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 get something with them i think that'd be fun i'll do what i can (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, David. Compliments of the season to you. I think this has been a a really fun episode and I hope the listeners like it at home.
1: Yeah, and to you. It's been a uh, fun year and I think we've marked time without Doctor Who fairly well. I think fandom has in fact marked time fairly patiently, but there's a new series coming in just a few months.
0: It's hard to believe you'll be back for the February episode. By the time of the March episode, the new series will be upon us big time. So it's not that far away. Absolutely. All right. Cheers, David. I'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow facebook.com forward slash the dw show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined our version of the doctor who theme arranged by george Locke. look him up on youtube folks This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.